0: men need to ask themselves, how have I been complicit in a system that is giving me power over others and and creating power differentials? And if I am complicit, how can I learn to listen? So to turn to repent, which is a biblical concept and move in the other direction uh, for flourishing of all people.
1: This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia, first-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendore, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Megan Chance. She is the host of Faith and Feminism podcast and author of a new book, Women Rising. Megan, thank you for joining the conversation.
0: I am so excited to be here. Um, I just talked to Andy earlier about uh, your specific dom- denomination, and I am so grateful to see Baptist taking up this space. So yeah, you who are listening. <laughs>
1: Uh, So, all right, so beyond uh, your podcast and the book and your mission work, which we're all going to get to shortly, um, what would you want people to know about you?
0: Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, uh, If I could sum it up, I believe in a world where people are free to be who they are without restrictions, um, whether that is, you know, through policy or through societal pressures, Uh, to be who they were created to be. And so the way that looks like specifically for me is reclaiming feminism for Christianity uh, because I've seen how the church, I mean, you have already given me a little history lesson on your denomination was in response to women uh, kind of being pushed out of leadership of the church. And so my podcast is in response to having uh, teachings that prohibited women from holding the same spaces as men um, and really relegated them to the home and to housework. And so um, I've been uh, trying to reclaim feminism and trying to educate people of my own faith tradition about the harms of gender role theology and how it primes the ground for abuse and how it's not just here in the United States that we might see this, but it's also a global sensation and how we really need to, to challenge these strict gender norms um, and patriarchy that the church, um, you know, has been a, a great upholder of.
1: So you started the Faith and Feminism podcast a few years back. What, what was the vision behind creating it?
0: Yeah, uh, so um, we can get into this later. I don't know. I'll try and answer it briefly, and maybe we can do a deep dive. Um, so I was a missionary that worked with um, exploited women, whether that was sexually ex- um, exploitation, denied an education, violence, um, and realizing that the gender norms that my church had taught was complicit. In their oppression. And so I'll give two brief examples of this. Um, I've worked with survivors of female genital mutilation in um, Kenya, and realizing that the gender roles uh, of that culture and that community led to the physical Uh, harm and violation of of, of young girls having their external genitalia removed and the dangers of either bleeding to death or the health problems that came with that. Or um, another example of this is I was working with sexually exploited women in the Philippines, specifically where Western men would come and buy trafficked women. And I was having a conversation with a John and I asked him why he was there. And uh, he said that uh, he came to the Philippines into this specific area because women there were raised right and they knew how to respect men. And he was talking about how women didn't know their place. And so he came to this place where women were subservient and sexually available to him uh, to get that respect that he deserved. And it was so... Interesting because in that moment when he said that, I realized, uh, you know, when he was specifically talking about the respect, respect that a man needs and deserves, that he sounded like so many of the books I had been given on marriage and so many of the pastors I had grown up with. And it was this huge moment of realization that the faith tradition I had come from, specifically when we're talking about the gender role theology of a man needing so much respect and and admiration and a woman being subservient and there to meet his needs. uh, It wasn't benign. It was actually the same, it was at least the same reason, if he wasn't a, you know, a churchgoer himself, because I know there are a lot of stories, um, and I can get into that later too, of church going men. by an exploited women, but um, it was just a huge realization. Oh my goodness, he's using the same language that my pastors have and that prominent evangelical authors have. And so realizing the complicity there and uh, trying to educate people about the harms of this and how it's not just harming women again in the United States, but all around the world and how we can do better and live an ethic and a faith and a gender role theology that's a lot closer to the model that Christ talked about uh, than, uh, you know, these really uh, screwed up patriarchal versions of it. And so um, that's why I started the Faith in Feminism podcast is because I I truly believe feminism is a move of God. Uh, I mean, and I'm going to d- define feminism, you guys probably know, but feminism is just is dictionary defined as equality between men and women. And so of course um, I believe in a God who believes in equality and uh, I serve a God who believes in equality. And so for me, this is not only um, a moral cause, it's a, it's a faith-based one. And so hence the Faith and Feminism podcast.
1: Going back to your, your work on the, on the mission field, that, that kind of work is both emotionally uh, draining and fulfilling. Um, mm-hmm. You know you're making a difference, but at the same time you're seeing such heinous treatment of other human beings that it can be soul-sucking. So, how did you find a way to to be able to care for yourself while you were giving um, so much of yourself to people who are experiencing so much trauma and suffering? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I mean before even I dive into that, I want to talk about problematic elements of missions um, because historically if we go back a lot of the way uh, missions has been used is um really exploitive so let's talk about for example um this idea in the united states that we were a christian uh, nation and we needed to claim more land for christians and we actually took land away from native americans to claim it for christian leaders And, and and before that we have um the papal bulls, which is like edicts, edicts from the church that told people to conquer land that wasn't claimed for a Christian ruler or leader, and so you either killed or converted those people. And so, historically, unfortunately, I mean, this is so anti-Gospel, but they were using the name of Jesus and the name of God uh, to promote commit gross harm. And so, uh, you know, twenty I, when I did most of my missions work, I mean, it began and. Uh, 20 around 2012 um and while a lot of things like of course I wasn't killing people to convert them there was still a lot of um layers of superiority uh Christian superiority like I had what they needed I could fix their problems um and 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 how that was intersected with racism and colonialism and so I talk about in my book about when I was called out on my white saviorism and white colonialism, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that um, you know that while my intentions were good and to help women, I always I didn't always do it right, and sometimes it was very white saviory, and sometimes I did it wrong. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that all missions are bad, but I think we need to do a real examination of the way we do missions: is it exploitive? Is it white? Superiority, um, like, for example, some of the examples I give in my book is, you know, I was handed a mic to speak to, you know, hundreds of, of people on perseverance, um, when maybe people from their own community might be better equipped to speak on perseverance, right, I had come from a, a, a wealthy, well, not wealthy, uh, wealthy by the world standards upbringing, um, and, and what could I learn from them? And so I think before we even dive into like how I manage or on the mission field, we need to talk about how, um, we need to learn how to listen first, which is what my, the subtitle of my book is learning to listen. Um, I think it's so important that we listen to people instead of just assuming that we know how to help them and that we let them lead the charge and that we become supporting roles. And so I think missions, if we're doing missions, um, but, and again, I'm not saying all missions are bad, but if we do do missions, it's coming as a supporting role and that that you should empower people in their communities because they know their communities best and they know how to help their communities best. And so um, an example of this is with female genital mutilation, which um, I think I mentioned earlier, I was just on another podcast that's right before us, so I hope I'm not repeating things, um, but, uh, if I want to help make a difference in there, the women who are making the biggest difference um, in fighting female genital mutilation are women who have are survivors or have endured it or are part of that community themselves. And so of course it makes sense because they know the culture the best and they know how to talk to those people and get them to kind of change their ways. And so for me, if I want to do missions that, you know, say specifically, doing work for female genital mutilation, I need to support women uh, who are already doing the work, who are already familiar with that context. And so I just wanted to issue that caveat um, before I dived in <laughs> to how I practiced self-care. Um, so yes, to answer your question, I have witnessed and have been told about the grossest injustices against women, rape, abuse, female genital mutilation, uh, women being beaten within an inch of their lives, injustice, uh, racism. And I think those stories are hard to hear. And I think it's, of course, it's hard to hear because it's heartbreaking that people are treated this way. But I think through practicing, and I didn't even do this well, but through sitting with that pain and realizing that you're not necessarily the one to fix all of those problems. Like you don't need to be the fixer. Oftentimes it's there to be a listening ear. Um, And since then I did not get therapy on the mission field. And I feel like that's something that we definitely need to do because there's a lot of burnout, but since I've come home, I've, I've regularly seen a therapist to talk about some of the things that I've seen and witnessed, um, but also allowing those moments to be a catalyst for me to do better. And to now that I know better, now that I've listened to these stories, what can I do? In what ways is my faith tradition harming others? Or maybe not even my faith tradition, my race, my country. And what ways are my people perhaps contributing to the oppression of others? And what can I do uh, to stop that oppression? Um, And so for me, that's been a lot of times I felt helpless in the face of these huge injustices. But what I have found is maybe the most healing thing is to know that I can learn and I can change and I can do better. And so can my faith community. And so for me, feeling like I have the agency to make a difference And the way people think about this, or maybe examining the ways that they might be contributing to this, that for me has been a real healing process and to know that I'm doing the best I can to honor these women's stories.
1: So you have a a new book, Women Rising, Learning Mm -hmm. to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. Uh, This book is a call to give a voice, confront injustice, and discover biblical standards for gender equality. this might be a silly question, but why was, the, why was now the time to write this?
0: Interesting question. <laughs> I actually started writing this book um, like at least five years ago. The first draft of it was, and I know probably all authors say this, uh, it was terrible, but I think it was even more terrible than most first authors first draft because at the time that I wrote the first draft, I... I think I lacked a lot of awareness of, so I, I talk a lot about complicity. How are, how you know, in the Bible, when we talk about Isaiah, um, we, we get a lot of, um, you know, scripture in which, God is telling us to wash our hands and be clean, and He doesn't want our burnt offerings, and He doesn't want our worship until we learn how to live in right relationship and to care um, for the widow and the orphan, and learn to stop doing evil. I'm, I'm referencing Isaiah one here. Um, so when I first wrote this book, I didn't think I really understood how my actions, uh, my traditions, could be harmful to other people. So. I thought at the time when I wrote this first draft, um, because something was true and something was real, is that these women's stories were wrong and we needed to do something about it or what happened to them was wrong and we needed to do something about it. I decided to make the decision to write myself out of the story. And that what I was doing was just telling a series of women's stories. That was problematic for several different reasons, but one of them is how could I possibly attempt through, you know, spending a weekend with a woman or even a couple of hours to tell her story. That's not my story to tell. That is their story to tell. And they have a voice and I hope to amplify their voices, but it's not my job or even my responsibility or even something I should do is to, to attempt to tell other women's stories. And so when I wrote the first draft, it was like it lacked, it lacked a lot, but one of the things that lacked was authenticity because like, there's no way I could know the full extent and there's no growth and progression of what happened um, in my story because ultimately my story is a story that was learning to listen and learning uh, how their stories intersected with mine. And so my first draft was terrible. It was like five or, man, it was a long time ago. I think 2000, um, I think it was like 2016 or 2015 when I wrote my first draft. And uh, realizing that writing myself out of the story wasn't helpful or needed. Um, and rewriting it as a memoir to say, um, hey, I was raised with these, these thoughts and these these um traditions and if I can learn to change my mind you can too and so um this memoir evolved from me telling my story of how I went from a girl who was entrenched in patriarchy and uh um uh, white supremacy and all of these you know isms to learning oh my goodness I would never mean to hurt people but being part of these systems may hurt people. And so how can I do better? And so that's, this book, it's been a long time in the making and I've been working steadily towards it um, for the last five years. And um, I, you know, got signed with a publisher um, about a year, no, two years ago and have been working on, you know, finalizing the draft and, and, and marketing and all that stuff. And so the time that it's coming out, well, I, it seems like God was behind it because it seems like the perfect time to have this conversation. And so, um, the reason I decided to write it, well, it's been something that's been inside me for a long time and, uh, with publishing and everything, it just feels like divine. Yeah. Like something divine that God orchestrated, That now is the time for people to read this book. Um, So I hope that answers your question. (laughs) Um, It's been a long way in the making.
1: You know, one only has to open the Bible and take a leisure look to find all the many ways that expresses patriarchal views of the world, Mm -hmm. religion, faith, and culture. You wrote, I read my Bible and every book I could get my hands on that talked Mm -hmm. about women's roles in the church. I prayed telling God, if I was really designed to be a submissive housewife, I would do it. But if God had something else for me, he needed to reveal it. Talk to us about the faith tradition you were raised and how it affected the way that you saw your role as a woman in the church, society, relationships, and family.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in a non-denominational church and it's interesting because um, my parents were divorced. They got divorced when I was, uh, before I, I, actually never remember them together. So, um, but it was my dad who took us to church and I remember asking my mom, <clears throat> why she didn't go to church. And she said, because they don't like me because I'm a divorced woman. And I remember not not getting it. I'm like, well, they let dad go. So why can't they let you go? And so I think that was just a small tidbit into the sexism um, that was in the church that I grew up in. And so along with those lines, um, I was uh, taught that my primary role was to serve the men in my life. Um, All of my teachings from a young age centered on how I could be a good housewife today. And so that came hand in hand with purity culture, right? Many people are familiar um, with this idea that uh, we were told as young girls that our whole worth was found in our purity and there's all these purity culture teachings that said, you know, you are a Oreo, but if you do anything sexual, you're a licked Oreo and no one wants you. The one that I got was, um, I was a flower. And if I did something sexual, I would lose a petal. And then I would, I would be a bald flower and it would, I'd be worthwhile to no one. So I grew up with, uh, this hyper focus on my quote unquote purity and whether or not I had done anything sexual hand in hand with those teachings became modesty culture I was told that um you know my body was a temptation it was a stumbling block I was I grew up with phrases like don't show if it's not on the market I grew up um, having to go to the pool fully clothed where my male counterparts could wear whatever they wanted and this idea and again and again that um Uh, subversively that my body was shameful and something that needed to be hidden and something that was dangerous. And so internalizing that shame and thinking that my body was wrong, thinking it was something I needed to hide, um, having a lot of shame when I started to go through puberty and my body started to change um, because I had been sexualized far before I had gone through puberty, through purity culture teachings. I remember um, I was 13 and I had a shirt that Uh, barely like showed a sliver of my stomach when I rose my hands and my youth pastor telling me it was shameful and I needed to change or it would make men do bad things and, uh, or attempt them. And I would be a stumbling block. And I remember at that age, not even understanding the concept of sexuality and how something as simple as a small sliver of my stomach showing would entice any man to, to, to harm me or to, to, to sexualize me. That was, it was just something so far beyond my frame of reference. And unfortunately I wore a lot of shame from my incident, but it was later that week. That was the first time I was sexually assaulted when a stranger came up and and grabbed my chest when I, you know, was just beginning to develop in that area. And I, I thought it was my fault and I thought I had become a licked lollipop or a, a you know a spitting cup or all of these other analogies and i because i have literally been literally been taught that i was responsible for men's sexual thoughts and sexual actions i internalized this as my own shame as my own responsibility and of course Anyone hearing that story would be like, of course, it wasn't your fault. You were 13, and I was petting a stray dog. Like I was coming up from petting a stray dog. Of course, there's no way was I responsible for what happened to me. Yet that was something I internalized for well over a decade. It was my shame. I couldn't tell anyone about it, um, and so I had a lot of shame. I, I was told to be submissive and silent and not to speak up. That um, my my God given duty was to serve my husband or the men in my life. And so um, I tried to believe those things and and I followed the rules. Um, But what I found is that those rules didn't protect me from violence and they didn't protect other women from violence. And it turns out the only thing that made us vulnerable was the fact that we were in the body of, of a woman. And the fact that we had been raised to not use our voice and to submit to men and that we were told, you know, told that that would protect us. But what was actually harming us was men, right? Like the the men who were supposed to be protecting us were the ones who were harming us. And and how, how do we, you know, kind of reconcile that? So that was my upbringing. And it wasn't until working with exploited women and hearing Similar stories over and over and over and over again that I saw beyond the individual occasions of my own life where I had been, uh, you know, sexually assaulted or sexually harassed or whatever. I saw those not as individual um, actions, but part of a larger system that treated women as less, that told men that they were entitled to women's bodies that told um, yeah, men that they were supposed to be in control and be powerful and, and vulnerable and that women were supposed to be soft and serving. And I saw how these extreme power differentials between men and women were actually contributing to abuse. And so this is not just something I started to observe over time, this is something that's actually scientifically shown. There's a psychoanalyst, her name is Lynn Yonak, and she talks about how sexual assault is not a crime of sex or lust or any kind of sexual desire. It's, it's actually about dominance, power, and control. So we have to pause and ask ourselves, if we are part of a faith tradition that espouses enormous power differentials between men and women, this is definitely priming the, uh, the, the ground for abuse to happen. And one only need to look at Ravi Zacharias or Josh Duggar or Robert Aaron Long, who murdered eight women to remove the temptations. To, these are all, you know, Christian men. We have to ask what things have they been taught that would lead them to commit violence towards women. And and why is it so common? Because we keep on hearing the same story again and again and again. When are we going to ask why this is happening? And so that was my upbringing. And it was through these women's stories that I started to ask why.
1: Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a Certificate in Pastoral Care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The Certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities. It requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu backslash options.
2: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests,
1: Let's take that a little deeper. You know, I grew up in the evangelical tradition with true love weights and hyper aggressive Mm -hmm. preaching on suppressing sexual feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, You wrote the evangelical church has failed when it comes to teaching about sexuality among congregants. This could be one of the reasons porn use is so high because we Mm -hmm. fail to have healthy conversations about sex. People are going to seek that information in other ways. Mm -hmm. You know, porn is one outlet for sexual expression. But so is sexual harassment and assault Mm -hmm. and rape. Do you think there's a connection between the way that evangelicals approach sexuality and these types of sexual aggression um, that are being uh, acted on or conducted by those who are evangelicals?
0: Oh, absolutely. 100%. You cannot convince me otherwise. So, um, something I talk about in the book is so I already talked about like power differentials, but like I want to drill down more into purity culture that um, you talked about, like the true love rates. So, I'm going to tell two personal stories, uh, anecdotes that I think serve to show my point. So, um, the first story I'm going to tell is um, when I was 12, I was told. All of the girls, not the men, only the girls were pulled aside and to write a letter to our future husbands and how our bodies were gifts that had never been opened. Like we were being likened to a gift that we gave our husband and we loved this future idea of him so much that we would never do something sexual. And the idea is that our bodies were a gift to him. They weren't our own. They were, they were for men my body was not for me. It was for him. And it was my job to protect that gift until I was married. And so at the age of 12, you don't, you do what they tell you to do. You don't ask questions. You're not exposed to, to, to greater teachings of this. And so, um, I mean, <laughs> I, it's, I, it's sad that I kept that letter. I, you know, protected my purity at all costs. Um, I've obviously deconstructed a lot of this since then. But I remember giving that letter to my husband when I got married, not at this point, I had known that it was actually really harmful that I was asked to write that letter. And I, I, I kind of gave it to him as a, as a joke, like, look at I'm sexually pure, ha ha ha. And he read it and you know my 12-year-old scrawled handwriting and he's like this is heartbreaking this is so sad that you were raised to think that my your body was my property and we see this not only echoed in in, in the teaching that i had that my body was his belonged to him his future property but There's also phrases like, don't show it if it's not on the market, which is teaching young boys that if something is showing that he's entitled to touch it, it's just, it's it's showing an entitlement. It's objectifying a young girl, but it's showing an entitlement that you, if she's showing it, you can touch it, which is, is totally backwards. It's like, there was no consent taught there, right? Like, oh, well, you're showing it. Like, would you not want, do you want that touched or grabbed? I was like, well, no, but like, I don't want my face touched or grabbed either. And my face is showing, you know, there's, there's um, this, this idea of entitlement, because if it's showing that I'm entitled to touch what I have, and even that teaching of like, uh, my body belonged to him, and and it was my job to protect it but again it's teaching the subversive entitlement of women's bodies um and then i mean we can even talk about um the billy graham rule where this idea that men and women aren't supposed to be alone because a woman's body is a temptation and a man can't control himself and so this idea that men are these like sexually voracious creatures that can't help themselves when exposed to a woman's body and that's harmful and so they're also told if they are feelings of sexual arousal instead of knowing how to which is normal and natural because girls also experience sexual arousal how do we talk through those those natural feelings in a way that brings dignity to all parties involved and also doesn't bring shame, and so because we're not having these conversations or the conversations that we have are very, I guess, one-sided that men uh, kind of are entitled to women's bodies. I think this is one of the reasons that we do this, and so uh, it's natural for a thirteen-year-old boy or me, I don't know, I'm not a boy, so I don't know when that that testosterone starts going nuts, maybe 13, 14, Um, but they have to have a way to like, hey, this is what's happening. This is what you can do with these natural desires. Let's learn how to handle these responsibility, like with responsibility. Instead, those needs and those emotions and those totally normal hormones that are racing through his body are, are, are shamed and they're demonized. And so without a safe place to talk about it, the internet has a wealth of pornography there to teach them about sex. If they're curious about sex, this is where they're learning their cues. And as many people know, pornography is, is, uh, is full of images of violent images of women being dominated. And so not only are they being taught that what is natural is shameful, They're going to the internet that's teaching them, this is how sex looks, this is how sex should be. And when they start to become sexually active or when they start to, you know, experiment with their girlfriends or whatever, that because they've only seen this this model of domination through porn, which is extremely harmful, it stands to reason that they don't understand or comprehend consent, Um, they don't there was number one an entitlement that was taught about women's bodies and number two if we haven't talked about sex porn is teaching them a domination of women's bodies and so i think what we need to do is start to be brave and have these conversations how can we talk about the sexual needs and arousal that all young people experience while going through puberty without shame but also com- communicating consent and that imago day of, of the people they might be feeling these sexual arousal for. How can I respect her and her body while also processing ways that I might be attracted to it? And so I just think we just need to have a safe place to have these conversations.
1: You know, you talk about um, in the book, you know, the. The commonplace sayings of boys will be boys and mm-hmm. within the evangelical world you know you can't necessarily associate all evangelicals with um trumpianism or republicanism but you know when when um that video was released of trump talking about the way that he uh, grabbed women and touched women mm-hmm. even if they didn't want him to right. you know the, the whole conversation was around that's just locker room talk yeah you know and and that that is the uh, tends to be again eighty one percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, so we can only associate that tends to be the evangelical response to hyper masculinity. So, how does this conversation need to change within the church if, if that's how the evangelical church exists right now in this moment? Um, you know how how are they going to approach this conversation differently? What do you think it's going to take um, for for a shift to happen within that culture?
0: My goodness, that's such a good question. So uh, working with sexually exploited women and being a survivor of sexual assault myself, um, I mean, I was never a founder of Trump from the beginning. I thought he was a joke. I think even evangelicals probably started off thinking he was a joke. Um, I I remember being in New Zealand and hearing this was, uh, I think um, this was like a year before he even started running and, or, or sorry, before he was elected in November, um, the world was talking about Trump like he was a joke, as they should. He was, uh, you know, a reality star who made his money off of, you know, telling people they're fired and being disrespectful and like and 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 running, you know, just being a greedy man. And so I never liked him, and I remember the church and my experience, like. Pretty good before the election, also thought the same things. And, or so I was told, right? I could at least get people to agree with him. Oh, like, he's not good. And so, when he won the primary and when he was elected, and people still voted for him, even after he said those terrible things, I was completely devastated. I was beyond devastated. I felt like these Christian faith who had taught me my whole life to treat my neighbor as myself, to love my neighbor as myself, to care for those on the margins, to care for women and uh, you know, people of color, or marginalized folks, for queer people, actually didn't care about them because here was a man who was very outspoken that he didn't care and brushing aside the real harm that his words carried. And so for me, that was devastating. I remember talking to a man that I trusted crying the day after he was or i think it was the day he was elected and he said megan this is just god's will and one day you will see that and i remember feeling so unseen and unheard and i also just felt like this divine conviction that this wasn't this wasn't right and the way i was being treated wasn't right and the things this man was saying wasn't right and so i think we need to have conversations and to humanize people and learn to speak with nuance. And so I know that the reasons I was, I heard of why people voted for him, well, we need conservative uh, Supreme Court people or we need to protect conservative values. But I even wanna challenge this this concept of conservative values. So um, the conservative party, uh, for the most part is we know it's anti-immigration. That's one of their platforms. Like one of the things that got Donald Trump elected was is, is build the wall. Okay, so let's let's break that down. Why are so many Christians anti-immigrant? Why are 81% of people are Christians thinking build the wall is a goal, good slogan? And there's such a dissonance, right? Because if we're talking about missions, So many of these people probably went to Latin American American countries where we're getting these immigrants from and like wanted to help them, but not in their own country. So we need to talk about the, 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 uh, the cognitive dissonance that you think they're great as long as they don't come to your country. I mean, you came to go help them and now they're coming to seek help. But you want to turn them away because you think they'll be less for you. So we need to talk about that. We need to talk about this concept that there's not enough for, for people to go around. That, that is a gospel of scarcity. That is a gospel of hoarding. Um, if we look at Jesus, he was nothing like that. He he was an immigrant, he welcomed people from the margins. Uh, he didn't have scarcity mindset, you know, when they had five fishes and loaves, you know, to feed thousands of people, there was a multiplication. I think what Jesus tried to speak us, tell us again and again and again is there's enough for us. Share your resources, give what you have to the poor, visit the sick in prison. And so uh, the fact that he built a campaign on anti-immigration, that seems problematic, (laughs) um, number one. Then if we're talking about like women and how... We're kind of just brushing aside the fact that he bragged about sexual assault like let's look at jesus for a second did he see women did he honor women would he brush aside sexual assault and we see that no he wouldn't we, i mean we see the the, the story of the adulterous woman and and jesus bending low and getting on her level and and protecting her from the violence of people who wanted to, con- to, con- to condemn her so for me, I think there's almost this disconnect that a lot of our churches have become places for political slogans and politi- political action without looking at the real tenets of Jesus Christ. And another thing about conservatism um, is, you know, there's this, this huge push for less social programs and more kind of military spending we see that a lot like we don't want welfare queens quote-unquote welfare queens we we want people to pull themselves up where they bootstrap and we we want um a lot of our tax dollars to go to defending our country into the military we could also talk about how this seems to be anti-gospel because jesus said who lives by the sword dies by the sword why are we so obsessed With building more swords, for lack of a better term, Um, and, 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 and building up our military when Jesus told us that we should be, you know, not violent, or he said who lives by the sword dies by the sword when, you know, Peter was trying to protect him. So we need to ask ourselves questions about that. And then we need to talk about our social programs. Why do we not want to help one another? Um, you know, so a lot of people care about sex trafficking, about children being sex trafficked, um, here in the United States and around the world. But the reason kids are getting sex trafficked is because they're in vulnerable communities and have something called adverse childhood events. So, um, things that happen to them as child children and they're usually uh people who are coming from poverty or from an unsafe home or and they're often minorities and it's shown that ways that we can fight these adverse you know childhood events is um through through social programs, through helping struggling single moms. Another thing we care about a lot is abortion, right? Uh, I voted for Trump because he's pro-life. Well, why would a woman want an abortion in the first place? Well, could it be that the United States is the only wealthy country in the world that doesn't have paid maternity leave by law? Could it be that a woman is not protected when she has a child? If she's a single mom, how is she supposed to provide for her child? when she can't even be guaranteed a job that she can't have time off um, that there isn't programs for single moms uh, that, you know, that, that, that we're not helping like with childcare, all of these things will are factoring into our, you know, our pro thing. if we're supposedly pro-life and want to stop abortions. Well, we know how to prevent abortions and that's through helping struggling people who might feel like they have no choice to get but but to get an abortion and so again it's this it's it's this taking these surface level issues not investigating the why why is this happening why are immigrants coming to the united states why are women seeking abortions why and how can i help these people to force them, to help them with flourishing instead of demonizing them um, and condemning them from their actions. And I actually think that's a biblical model because how often, how often, how many times in the Bible does it say to love your neighbor as yourself and to serve those in need? So of course, for me, like not only are Trump's words problematic, but the policies that he represents are not for the flourishing of humanity, which I think is a gospel mandate. And so I think we need to have a lot more nuanced conversations and start asking the question, why? Why is this happening? If this is my stance, what is causing it? Why do I believe this? Is it biblical? Is this something that Jesus would do? Well,
1: if you want to stay connected with Megan, visit meganchance.com. That's T-S-C-H-A-N-Z. Check out uh, some of her postings on social media. And of course, go out and purchase Women Rising. Uh, Megan, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Uh, We're grateful for your incredible work and thinking and challenge to us um, to amplify the voice of women around the world.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: This podcast is presented to you by McAvee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.